Stand open our Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not letting us rush through these passages. Mark 14 verse 27. The Bible says, And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I'll smite the shepherd, the sheep shall be scattered. Then verse 45. And as soon as he was come, he goes straightway to him and he saith, Master, Master, and he kissed him and and they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant at the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said to them, Are ye come out is against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and ye took me not. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. I want to preach tonight on the struggle is real. The uh, disciples. Now, this is this is the unanimous chapter of their struggle. I know they all struggled at different times, but to see all of them, we know Judas already gone off the cliff, but the others are truly spiritually struggling. And let me just add this in quickly. I'm so grateful for Capital City, any church. Uh, my goal is not to pastor the perfect, or I'd have no reason to pastor, but to pastor the growing. And those that are getting up after they fall, but just being real and being honest. And too many times in too many places, serving God becomes duty, ritualistic, or fake. And you don't want that to ever happen. And uh, so when you're real and you begin to struggle, and that struggle lasts more than a day, you're not used to faking it. So you're trying to say, I need to smile, but I'm hurting. I need to push forward, but I'm struggling. I need to appear to be strong, but I'm not. I want to, to be the Christian that I'm supposed to be, but I know that I'm not being what I should be. Anybody ever found yourself there? And I believe these are good men, strong men, great men, blessed men, spiritual men. And they're all struggling. So we want to talk about various sides to this. First of all, we want to talk about why. Why the struggle? When and how did this all start? Go back with me to verse 40 of our chapter. And speaking of Christ in the garden, he had taken Peter, James, and John. We spoke of this last week. And the Bible says, when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were very heavy. Now, the struggle is real when you find yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. Now, we like to all think that we should be super Christians, but how many of you have ever found yourself not just emotionally exhausted or not just physically? If it, was just, if it were just one of those, normally we can fight through. We're talking about those that have actually been in the battle. We're talking about mothers with children and marriages and fathers with responsibility and people that are dealing with sicknesses and we're talking about real struggles in life and uh, not just dealing with the spiritual exhaustion or the emotional exhaustion or the physical exhaustion but all three in a package deal where you just say I'm at the end of my rope and I don't want to sleep 10 hours or 12 hours I just want to sleep consecutive days 
and wake up and have it be a brand new day and realize my problems are mysteriously and magically gone. That would be a beautiful thing. Some of you have been there. And guess what? When you're there, you don't talk about it. You just feel it. And you're trying to pick yourself up and make sure you make it through another day and figure out, okay, I've heard all of the preaching over the years and this is when it's supposed to be a part of my life to carry me through this moment. But I'm not feeling it. I know God's present and I know God's grace is real and I know I need all of that. But here's what happens. At these times, we're not talking about a day or a moment, a single sin. We're talking about a period of time in your Christian life where you say, I wish this were a struggle that would pass with a good night's sleep. I wish this were a struggle that would pass uh, with a moment of counsel from a wise a man or a woman of God. I wish this were a moment that would pass with a nutritious shake and a three-day fast. But this is a situation that is going to directly impact their lives long-term. It's going to mark them both for good and for bad. It's going to leave some labels. It's going to define the way we think of them. And here's what happens. This chapter is... Very unique and very extensive. There's no way to exhaust everything that's going on. We don't know all the details. All we know is what Christ prophesied was coming to pass. And he said, all of you are going to be scandalized, offended, and forsake me. And that's exactly what happened. And these were the strongest of the strong. And suddenly they found themselves among the weakest of the weak and doing things they didn't think they would ever do. We highlighted that Peter argued with the Lord, but it wasn't just Peter. They all chimed in and said, uh, Christ, you don't have to worry about us. We're the inner circle. We're, we're with you. We're behind you. We're not fighting against you. We're fighting with you. And then as they wander off in the darkness of night, uh, we see here in the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the deep sleep they find themselves in. And I don't think it's just those three. I think the other eight have no problem with Christ separating with Peter, James, and John. No jealousy at all because they say, let them go pray, let us sleep. It, there were not just three passed out in the garden. There were probably 11. That's not an accusation. That's a good supposition. Amen? And guess what? You're going to find yourself... At some point in life, in a situation like this, where a single altar call, a single Bible text, a single moment of devotions, a single week or conference or day or whatever it is, is not going to fix the spiritual problem, the emotional problem, the physical problem that's going on. And you're going to have to say, okay, I am going to get through this by the grace of God, if it takes me a little while, I'm going to get through this. And this is, this is a moment of shock and disbelief. Once again, somehow their preconceived ideas of Christ never awaken to his teaching. So folks, we can't measure the level of shock because literally all his, all his talking and speaking and preaching about his coming death, none of that ever registered at all. I mean, literally, they had a blockade there that couldn't accept a single word of that part of his preaching. So when all this happened, 
This is just leading. They're already physically tired, but this is leading to emotional exhaustion and distress because they're looking, okay, 20 minutes in the future, 20 days in the future, 20 years in the future, and saying, if, if this Messiah is not going to rule and reign, we put all our hopes on him, what's this mean for us? If they can take his life, if they can end his ministry, if they can accuse him and he has no response. So there was just an absolute exhaustion. And church, when you reach this point, here's what I believe so important, to keep a thumb on your mental health, your emotional health, your physical health, your spiritual health. All three are intertwined, and too often we deal with one and leave the other undone. A physical is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But checking out your blood pressure, your sodium levels, amen. No, this, we don't need to get quiet on that. This is just a little logical. Your spiritual problem may not be as deep as you think if you just check your blood sugar level. You, you may figure out cholesterol and everything else is, is an issue, and you may be solving your prayer life, but if you don't solve your physical issues, you're going to struggle in every other area of life. If you're continually exhausted physically, you're going to be exhausted spiritually and spent emotionally. And that's where they find themselves at this moment. Then look what it says in verse 46. And they laid their hands on him and took him. I want to say number two, the struggle was real, not just when we're physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted, but when hope seems gone. They had watched him heal the sick and raise the dead. Okay, there was nothing beyond his power, absolutely nothing. So this was, this was Superman. He was their Messiah. And now this crowd has come and arrested him. Their hope is now almost over. When you see everything, they're going to watch from a distance everything that takes place. Obviously, they're going to forsake him. The Jews had a system of justice that at that time was pretty much uh, nearly perfect, flawless in a lot of ways. Besides the 70 members of the Sanhedrin and the, the judges. And the, in this case, call me to John 18. Uh, I know there's a lot of opinions here on how many people stood, Christ stood before. I believe there was the, the Jewish trial and the secular trial. Um, John 18, in the Jewish trial, he would stand first before Annas and then Caiaphas, and then he'd stand before the Sanhedrin. All this would take place at night. Okay, these men that were supposed to believe in Justice according to the law are going to break every Jewish law established. But at this point in Israel's history, the high priest was not concerned about upholding Jewish law at all. He was concerned about power and influence and money. That was it in maintaining it with the Roman government as well. But look what it says in John 18, verse 12. We have our very first step when they take Christ... Uh, they're going to take him before Annas. Verse 12, then the band and the captain, the officers of the Jews took Jesus and they bound him. You've got to imagine here in your mind what is going through their mind when they see their Messiah bound, arrested, detained, 
And now they see, okay, there will be no justice tonight. They know everything that's protocol is being broken. Everything they're claiming to be legal is illegal. Everything they're going to do. You cannot have justice at midnight. They're not going to initiate a discovery of the facts. They're going to solely determine to indict. So we've got to find witnesses to bribe. Can you imagine in the middle of the night you're trying to find witnesses to bribe? It's not a good time to bribe witnesses. Lying witnesses. Those are all in bed fast asleep. Verse 13. They led him away to Annas first. For he was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now, although Annas didn't have the position, he was still the head of the mafia. He was still the big cheese. He was still the most important, uh, we wouldn't say, sitting on that throne of the legal system that the Jews had set in place. He was the one that was pulling the strings, although he no longer held a position. And all this power was in one family. His son-in-law would soon also deal with the Lord Jesus Christ. But they lead him first. So the first part of this, in the middle of the night, this rush to justice, he's going to stand before Annas, and then they're going to take him over to Caiaphas. This was supposed to be done in the judgment hall of the temple during daylight. But within a five to six hour span, Literally, he'll stand before uh, the Sanhedrin, Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, then be taken to Herod, and then back to Pilate and condemned to death. Can you imagine that? In, in the, the middle of the night, now what is going through? I need you to understand that, to understand what is going through the minds of the disciples because they're just sitting there. We look at American justice system, which was at one point one of the strongest Justin's justice system on the face of the planet. And now we say, who truly is going to get justice? What government organization hasn't been corrupted on some level? But this is the biggest miscarriage of justice in the history of mankind. Now go back with me to Mark chapter 14. In the middle of this, there's a mad dash to do everything before the people awake and can see what's taking place. On top of this, it's all taking place on the Passover, which was never supposed to happen. But here they come with the illegal testimony, verse 55. The chief priests and all the council sought for witnesses. So it's not that they had any proof. We've got to go find proof because we've already determined the fate of this man. It's death. Before morning, here's what they were determined to do. Before the morning dawn breaks, we need to condemn him to death. So you go find witnesses that allow us to indict him on the level that we desire and have him slain. Verse 56, for many bear false witnesses. Now, according to Jewish law, what was supposed to be to happen to a witness that was bribed or lied or gave false testimony? He was to be put to death. So when you have those that are in charge of justice saying, we want liars, we're willing to pay liars, These were the best witnesses on the planet that money could buy. (laughs) That's scary. And the disciples were watching this. So if they said, this is our Messiah, this is the way it's unfolding, there's nothing he can do, there's nothing we can do, 
what is happening to their hope with every hour that is passing? Can you put yourself in the place of the disciples for a moment and understand why the struggle was so real? Because hope was absolutely obliterated on this night. For many bear false witness against him. But their witness agreed not together. There rose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Now, this is a total twisting of what he had said. How many of you like it? You appreciate it when someone twists your words. That's always a good thing, isn't it? This, this, we know this is a twisting of two things Christ said. Go with me to John for just a moment, John chapter 2. I hope you brought your Bible. I hope you use your Bible in God's house. Amen. John 2 verse 19. Look what it says. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What was he speaking of? His body. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. They believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. Now he was speaking in the body of his temple. Now he had prophesied of the destruction of the temple there on the Temple Mount, which would not be rebuilt. But at this point, here's what's taking place. They're gathering liars together, offering them money, and simply saying, we need someone to say the right thing and that we can use to condemn this man to death. His fate is already sealed. We just need the right testimony to make sure that it all happens. Now look what it says, verse 61. Ultimately, we know what he's going to be charged with, blasphemy. But he held his peace when the witnesses spoke lies against him. And again, the high priest asked him and said to him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, okay, as soon as he says these words, Jehovah, I am, it's all going to come, all going to fall apart, totally fall apart. But he had already told us that when he was arrested there in the garden, whom seek ye, I am he, and they all fall backwards. I've often read the Gospels and wondered, why did more people present not turn to him as a Messiah? Come on. When hundreds of people fall backwards at his words, a light doesn't come on. When Peter cuts off Malchus's ear and Christ heals him right there on the spot, that doesn't count for anything. The sun goes dark in the middle of the day. How many more visual illustrations do you need to prove that this was the very Son of God? But Jesus responds and says, I am. Ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes. Now, the only time the high priest could rent his clothes is if he heard something was blasphemous. Now, this is basically a big show of being put on by those present. The high priest is going to rip up his clothes and say, What need have we of any further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be what? Already. Uh, this miscarriage justice has gone totally out of control, but they've gotten what they've wanted now. They have reason to condemn him to death. But here's the point of reading all that. To put yourself in those circumstances and say, if you're a disciple and this were your leader and 
not even able to go through the normal trial process or not even uh, to, to be brought during the light of day before the Sanhedrin or before or Pilate or before Herod to have all of this take place under the darkness of night and then know he's condemned to death. Your struggle is going to be more real than it's ever been before because you're going to say if our hope was in him and he can't even stop the lies, if he can't slow down the process, if he can't even receive a fair trial, what chance do we have? And church, here's where you got to be careful spiritually. You reach a point where you're physically, emotionally, spent in every sense of the word or you come to a point in life where financially you say I don't see any way out of this I in this relationship in my home in my marriage whatever it is when your hope begins to grow really dim your spiritual struggle becomes a huge you got to say here are these disciples this night and I simply want you to wrap your mind around where they're at in their spiritual walk because for three and a half years, it was basically mountaintop. It was basically every day the preaching was greater than any revival or conference preaching that we've ever heard and the Spirit of God and the moving of the Spirit of God and the power of the speaking and it was the healing of the sick and the raising of the dead and the calming of the storm and the feeding of the 5,000 and literally every day was one miracle after another. And now you're, you're not getting dropped off the cliff. You got kicked out of an airplane without a parachute and you're just free falling. And here's what these disciples are doing. They're free falling saying, we have no hope. We're going to hit the bottom and all of us are dead. This is our leader. And church, when you get to a point in life where whatever situation you're dealing with seems less and less hopeful, you got to say, okay, I need to be very careful. Spiritually, I need to be very careful because this is a spiritual cliff where I could do things that might not be undone. Look what it says, verse 71 and 72 of chapter 14. This is when Peter, we know, denies Christ three times. But the third time is a little unique. Look what it says. Because he begins to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom you speak. And the second time the cock crew, Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said to him before the cock crowed twice. Thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out. He thought thereon, and he wept. The struggle's real when we have a uh, disappointing misstep or sin or failure. How many of you ever had a moment in life you thought you were doing well, you started to build up a little self-confidence, you didn't even think it was the wrong kind of self-confidence. And then right in the middle of what you thought was spiritual strength and smooth sailing and I've reached a point that I finally wanted to reach of spiritual consistency. And then you just went out and did something very spiritually stupid. And the problem was you weren't the only one that noticed. Your family noticed. And another Christian brother noticed. Sometimes you pull it off in the big scene, in the big stage, 
where everyone notices. Or maybe no one noticed except the person that has the big mouth. <laughs> and not only are they going to relay the circumstance, they're going to twist it as it's being relayed. And you know it's going to get twisted. Now, hold on for a second. You mean to tell me, we're, we're talking about cousins, lifelong friends, fellow fishermen. Peter has not lived this moment down for 2,000 years. Let me ask you this. How do you think the next few days went with his fellow disciples? They're already down in the dumps. Yo, bro, I didn't even know you knew those words. Where did that come from? That little girl looked traumatized. I can't believe you had to scream like that. Really? I don't think anybody gave him a hard time. I know someone gave him a hard time. You know what men do to other men? They give each other a hard time. Is it perfect timing? No. Is it kind and gentle and loving? No. Does it happen? Yes. yes. Absolutely so. And I guarantee it didn't die down over the next two weeks or two months or even two years. I guarantee you eight years down the road, somewhere in a conversation, somewhere that came back up to the surface. And here's what happens. Satan knows our spiritual buttons and when you're struggling, that struggle gets real. You're going to say, Pastor, you know what? I, I flopped. I failed. I messed up. I shouldn't have done that. I, I can't believe it. I'm a grown Christian and I did this. I responded that way. I reacted that way. And the problem is that doesn't disappear in a year because Satan will bring that back up five years later. And you know what you do? You have a bad week because five years ago, resurfaced. Anybody here say, yeah, the struggle's real. Oh, yeah. And here's, when you, when you understand these disciples, okay, all physically, emotionally, spiritually exhausted. Hope is basically gone. Christ is not just been detained and falsely accused, but now condemned to death. And all of them, we talk about Judas and Peter, but it was all of them that forsook him in his greatest moment of need and fled. So to some degree, it was Peter the verbally denying him, but they all denied him by their actions that night. So they all face plant. So now they're carrying the weight of what Christ said we would do, what we argued about not doing, we have done. Do you see how real their struggle is? Now let's mention one other thing before we talk about Solutions here. Go with me to verse 14. Here's why the struggle was even greater. In the midst of everything that's going through their mind. And on top of this, when they're physically exhausted tonight, who's, which one of the disciples is sleeping on this night? No, once the garden was over, there was no more sleeping to be done. They had reached the point of physical exhaustion. No one was sleeping. Verse 42. Christ, finishing his prayers, says, Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is it? hand, and immediately while he had speak of Judas, one of the twelve, with him a great multitude with swords and staves, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and he that betrayed him had given them a token, saying, Whosoever I shall kiss, that same as he, take him and lead him away safely, and as soon as he was come, he goes straight to, to him, to Christ, and saith, Master, Master, and Judas kissed Christ, and they laid their hands on him and took him away. Now, we're talking about the struggles, real, You've gone through all of this, but one of the things that weighs the heaviest on them, man, I went sewing with Judas every day for three years. 
And then he comes with this crowd. He kisses Christ and betrays him to the death, to the enemy. You know, you know what? If your friend betrays you in the slightest way, it eats at you in a way that nothing else can eat at you. After all that I've done for you and after all that I've helped you with and the money that I've spent on you and the times that I've incurred, and you do that to me? You've got to be kidding me. I mean, if an enemy pulls a gun or pulls a knife and puts it in my kidney, that I can understand. But you, bro, come on! We, we were close. You, you had to go and do that to me? That's the way we all think if someone that close to us betrays us. But here they are, all of them said, we just spent three and a half years with Judas. I, I can't believe this. I can't believe what he did. They have all these things coming crushing down on their heart, their mind, their soul, and their body. Okay? The struggle is real. And church, you might be surprised tonight by someone else you don't even know sitting on your pew that's dealing with a real... And the problem is, I'm supposed to be in church, and I'm supposed to be expressing the joy of the Lord. And I'm supposed to be a strong Christian. And I'm supposed to be one of the 11. And I'm supposed to be a spiritual leader. And I'm supposed to be a dear saint of God. And no one even knows that I am exhausted. No one even truly knows the depth to which I've been betrayed. And no one really knows how little hope I have concerning my circumstance. So, okay, Pastor. If I reach that point, or if I'm at that point, what am I supposed to do? Now, go with me to Mark 16, verse 7. How do we get past the struggle? Life is longer than your struggle. How many have come to that realization? Life extends itself way beyond what we think we're going to have to endure. Mark 16, verse 7. Verse 6, let's go to verse 6. He saith unto them, Be not affrighted, ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen, he's not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way, tell his disciples, and mark the next two words. What's it say? And Peter. Now why would he say that? There are 11 disciples. Why did he say, tell the disciples in Bartholomew? Tell the disciples in James. Why was Christ... Uh, well, the angel, why was he so specific and tell the disciples and Peter? Because it was Peter that had face planted. It was Peter that was disappointed in himself. It was Peter that said, I don't know if I should get up and show my face again in public. It was Peter that was probably the lowest of the low of the bunch. It was Peter the rehashing in his mind. I slept in the garden. I cut off a man's ear. I forsook him. I warmed myself at the devil's fire. I denied him. I cursed. I yelled at a maiden. Now, when you're at this law, one of the things we have to remind ourselves is that for some reason, God actually still loves us. And he's not surprised by what we've done. Christ was not shocked. He had told him exactly what was going to happen. There was no shock factor here. I can't even believe what kind of Christian am I. And Christ says, typical, normal. About the average. Here's what he does. Just about the time we think we're above average, we just revealed to ourselves that we're really not. 
We're not as strong. We're not as big. We're not as spirit-filled. We're not as brave. We're not as courageous. We're not as passionate as we think. We're flesh and bone. Here's what you got to do. When we're dealing with that kind of struggle, sometimes we got to remind ourselves, God cares, God knows, and you can just throw your name in there. Go tell the church and Chris and Uriah and Mike that I still want to talk to them, and I still have plans for them. Oh, by the way, Peter, in about 40 days, you're going to be preaching the biggest revival to ever <laughs> hit the world outside of Jonah's. Do you know, Peter, you're going to have one service where 3,000 get saved, and then you're going to do this little miracle, raise someone from the dead, and then they hold another service, and 5,000 are going to get saved. And then, yeah, you just hang, hang on tight there. Hold on to your suspenders. You're going to be pastoring about 50,000 people here in a couple years, Mr. Face Plan. So, yeah, I do need you to get up. Amen? So even though the struggle's real, he got to say, okay, God still has a plan for me coming out the other side, and I need to walk through this valley. I need to make sure that I'm doing everything I can. He cried. The Bible says he wept. There was confession. There was true repentance. And he gets up and says, God, I don't have any idea what you can do with me or for me or through me at this point, but um, I'm willing to at least get back up. Go with me to John 21. How many are glad that Christ wasn't done with you after your first struggle? How many are glad that you've seen God use you after a struggle because you got up, moved forward, confessed? Anybody here? Have a little bit of gratitude in your heart because of the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what it says, John 21, 1 and 2. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise, he showed himself... And there were together Simon, Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel, Cain, and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, two other of his disciples. The next thing you need to do when you find yourself in this level of struggle, you need to make sure you get back with the right crowd. You know what happens? I've seen Christians get in a real struggle in life, get to a real low point. Instead of getting back with the right crowd, they isolate themselves. Now, the last thing Peter needed to do was go be by himself, go fish in his own boat, or go find some unsaved heathen to fish with him. He didn't need to go pay a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist to get him fixed up. He didn't need any antidepressants. Can someone shake their head right here? He said, you know what I need to do if I'm going to get back up? I need to make sure I get around the right crowd that it can help pick me back up. So at least he found himself with the right crowd. He got with the disciples. And I know Peter, he's going to give me, I know James, he's going to give me a hard time. I know John's going to give me a hard time. That's okay. Thomas will doubt me, but he doubts everyone. (laughs) Christian, when you find yourself in a real struggle, the last thing you want to do in life is continue to isolate yourself and make excuses to be all alone. This is the time you need to get around the strongest Christians you know and say, guys, I don't know how I'm going to get up. I don't know how I'm going to get back. But with your help and by God's grace, I'm going to stand back up and do the right thing. Mark 16, keep your finger here. We'll be right back here in just a moment. Mark 16, verse 19. The Bible says, So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up to heaven, he sat on the right hand of God. And what's the Bible say? They did. They went forth, and they preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following them. Amen and hallelujah. You know what they did? They got up. Move forward, pressed on, said, you know what we're supposed to do? 
what we were doing before we fell. Get up, evangelize, preach, love God. And too often in the middle of the struggle, here's what we do. We stop doing the things that we know are right to do. Well, I've already done this. Why should I even go sowing it? What's the use of even praying? I don't even know why I'm reading the Bible. I don't even know why I'd go to the prayer meeting. And our fall and our struggle becomes an excuse to stop doing everything that we knew to do or have done or were doing. Suddenly, our excuse now is, well, I messed up. Who cares? Who cares? God cares, and you have a future, and you're not dead yet. And every decision after this still has a ramification, still has a consequence or a blessing. So you know what you do? You get back up, and you say, okay, that was a big face plant. I busted my nose and broke out a few teeth. I'm going to look silly for a few days until I get an insert, but I'm still going to move forward. I'm still going to preach, and here's what, you know what they're doing? 40 days later, 50 days later, They're doing exactly what they were doing previously. Getting up, doing what they knew to be right. And when you're in the middle of a struggle, too many people sit at home, complain, go to a dark place called the internet, fuss on Facebook. Go back with me to John 21 and we're done. You know what to do when you truly have come to that kind of struggle, find yourself in a valley, Christ comes. You know the story, I don't want to read it. Verse 15, you know it. They're dying. Jesus says to Simon, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? How many times did he ask him? Three times. Do you love me? Lord, you know I do. Do you love me? Lord, go feed my sheep. Peter, go, go feed my sheep. Verse 18, verily I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, walkest whither thou wouldest, but when thou Shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thine hands, and other shall gird thee. Speaking of the death, verse 19, this spake he signifying by what death Peter should die and how he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, what? Follow me. You know what he's doing? Christ is giving Peter the opportunity at this moment to recommit himself. That follow me, it happened three and a half years earlier. Now, after his big face plan, after his big struggle, after that horrific night, after the days that would follow, after the pain of looking back and reliving over and over and over again, that horrible scene, those three days of desperation, the women having to come and tell them about his resurrection, having to reconfront the facts and look the Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I can't believe I denied you and I can't believe I ever argued with you and I'm such a knucklehead. So here's what Christ does. Christ says, Peter, here's, if we're going to move forward, here's what I need you to do. You, you need to make a new commitment. Okay? One that's going to last. And just say, you when times get tough, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to drop. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to cave. I'm not going to give in. I may sleep a little longer. I may eat a little more chocolate. I may do a whole half gallon of ice cream instead of a bowl. But at the end of the day, I'm going to get up and say, God, you know what? I'm not giving you much, but I promise you with the energy that I've left, the brains that I've left, and the teeth that I've left, and the broken nose that I've left, I'm going to get up and serve you. And church, if you're not in the middle of a deep struggle, some point in your life, you will find yourself there. And it's not a pretty spot. I don't care what kind of spiritual leader you are, if you're a missionary, your pastor, assistant pastor, a normal member, at some point you're going to find yourself there.
And you're going to have to do what Peter did, saying, okay, God, I don't want to isolate myself, and I don't want this to continue, and I don't want to drag out this struggle. I want to shorten it if possible, but I want your help to shorten it. Because at the end of the day, God, I'm going to die serving you. 